0: Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. As always, Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Stitcher, Overcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. Also, remember that I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe and on Twitter as LesDocMicro1. So go ahead and, um, and follow. Leave some feedback. I always like to post pictures of organisms, and I always like to give an update as to when the next episode is coming out. So go ahead and you know leave some topic suggestions, or let me know what you think about the podcast. I'm always very open to feedback. So go ahead and follow. If you didn't get a chance to check out last week's episode, go ahead and do so. You know, it was a very good interview with Megan Wallace, Dr. Carrie Ann Burnham, and Dr. Daniel Weber from the University of Washington in St. Louis. So these three guests, they came in, they talked about a study where this diffusion testing was performed on isolates that only had six hours of growth. So think about that. Those of you that work in a lab, so you know that in order to perform susceptibilities on an organism you have to incubate it for 18 to 24 hours then after that you set it up and it takes about it can take 8-12 hours for your automated system to, pro- to produce a result if you perform a Kirby Bauer which is this diffusion or if you perform an e-test you have to incubate them and some of them like vancomycin, you have to wait A full 24 hours before reading the result so this is definitely a time-consuming process it is something that unlike other areas of the lab we cannot do it fast i mean we cannot run it on an instrument and produce a result you know within an hour we have to incubate these organisms and then the susceptibility process it takes time however in this study i mean they managed to get colonies that were incubated for six hours they performed the susceptibility testing, and they compared the susceptibility results to organisms that had the regular um, incubation time, which is 18 to 24 hours. And the results were actually really good. So hopefully, you know, more studies can be produced like this, and this is something that labs kind of need to look into, you know, if we can reduce the time that it takes for us to incubate the organism and then perform susceptibilities, the patient can get treated faster, which is the end goal of of what we do, right? We want to make sure that the patient gets the appropriate treatment. And for that, we need to identify the organism. And we need to perform susceptibility testing. And we also talked on the episode about how, of course, you know, some logistics need to be worked up. For example, maybe a, a separate incubator where there's not much access. Because if you're opening and closing, it's going to delay the growth of the organism. So that's one thing to look into. You know, always, of course, need staffing. That's always a big issue. So there's some some things that need to be worked up. But overall, this looks like a, something promising, I will say. Something that if it's implemented, it could definitely result in improvement in the amount of time that it takes for us in the lab to produce a susceptibility report so go ahead and check out last week's episode so today it's another interview episode I mean I mentioned that there's some interviews coming your way so I hope you enjoy them so this episode that it's coming now it's about stenotrophomonas maltophilia so those of us that work in the lab, I mean, if you're a student, you definitely will cover it. So we know that Stenotrophomonas is a gram-negative rod. It is indole-negative. It is oxidase-negative. It is a very significant organism, right? It's definitely it's seen in, in ICUs. Um, it also you know, likes to survive on hospital equipment, which makes it of, you know a very significant organism because you know if it likes hospital equipment, it's definitely involved in nosocomial infections. And not only that, this organism has a high level of intrinsic resistance to antibiotics. So, and those of you that work in the lab, you have seen it, right? You put a on the Vitek card, and it's only going to give you SXT. It's going to give you levofloxacin depending on the card. So there's only a handful of drugs that you test for it and this is because you know this organism has is very resistant which it makes it more difficult to treat. So in this study they evaluated stenotrophomonas maltophilia susceptibilities on three automated systems the Vitek2, the Phoenix, and the Microscan. So they wanted to see you know, how they perform versus, you know, your standard method, which is your broth microdilution. And they compare those results. So, this is what this interview is about. You know, we see how the instruments perform. You know, some did better than others. And we also talk about breakpoints as to why there are al- almost no FDA breakpoints for Senotropomonas maltophilia and what are the challenges of that. You know, this is an organism, like I said, it is very resistant. There's not that many antibiotics. And those of you that work in the lab, you have seen that sometimes even, let's say that you do an SXT and it comes out as resistant. Typically, you know, that's, that's the criteria that you use for to call Stenotrophomonas multidrug resistant or an MDRO. So some facilities, they will conf- confirm that SXT result to make sure. Uh, some might not. Some might steer away from some cards that are using the Vitek. So this organism definitely has its challenges, and like I keep saying, is very significant. Dr. Aisha Khan, she, you know, I get to interview her, and she talks about this study that it was performed. When the article was published, which was in August of 2021, you know, she worked for the Center for Antimicrobial Resistance and Microbial Genomics in Houston, Texas. And then when I performed the interview, she was a visiting faculty of infectious diseases at the Universidad del Desarrollo in Chile. So this is a great interview episode, some good information about Senator Fomona's and his challenges. So let's go ahead and listen to it. So today here we have a guest to discuss an article uh, titled Evaluation of the Vitec 2 Phoenix, and Microscan for Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing of Stenotrophomonas Maltophilia. This was published in August 2021 on the Journal of Clinical Microbiology of the American Society for Microbiology. So today with us, we have Dr. Aisha Khan. She is a visiting faculty in infectious diseases at the Universidad del Desarrollo Institute of Science and Medical Innovation in Santiago, Chile. So, Dr. Khan, uh, welcome to Let's Talk Micro.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. Um, so let's just start with uh, an overview of, of the study and its findings.
1: Yeah. So um, I guess specifically, the we, we kind of have a, a two parts. To, so there's two studies that are both uh, from the same set of isolates that we're working on. So essentially, we're, we're focusing on um, a bug that we don't really have a lot of contemporary data on so there's not a lot of studies published about senatorcomonas multifilia but it's a emerging cause of uh especially bloodstream infections in immunocompromised patients and largely um because uh right now we have an increasing immunocompromised population with you know cancer cancer treatment and other medical innovations that are that are creating a more susceptible uh population to opportunistic pathogens, which is why steno is gaining uh, prominence right now, Uh, but uh, there's a lot of problems when it comes to the clinical laboratory and how it can guide therapy of steno-infections, and the largest problem is there's a a lack of um, coherent or lack of concordance and lack of coordination between the regulatory bodies that are responsible for setting standards Um, for how clinical labs should be doing antimicrobial susceptibility testing. And there's a lot of problems with that that can make it very difficult for a clinical lab to guide treatment and guide um, physicians in picking the right drug.
0: Okay, so in this study, some cultures of stenotrophomonas maltophilia were compared and tested on some of the automated instruments that we have in the lab.
1: Correct, yeah, so so there, uh, we compared um, the three most common uh, or prevalent automated systems that are used in the United States, which is the, the Microscan, the Phoenix and the Vitec. Um, and there was a study that we did alongside that that's published in, uh, uh, in uh, JCM also that looks specifically at um, the manual methods for the, for the same set of isolates. So we also looked at diffusion and e-test as well as looking at these automated systems. So comparing both manual, how, how are the manual systems doing? And then how are the automated systems doing for the, for the labs that have more resources? Because again, low resource settings still rely largely on disk and uh, e-test.
0: Okay. And can you um, briefly summarize? So overall, um, how was, you know, how did the systems do?
1: So in, in, in terms of um, the performance specifically of, of, um, so there's three systems, and they all, I want to say, work in slightly different ways. So there's uh, different manufacturers, and again, so we're basically comparing uh, the technology between them, um, and we're doing it using uh, CLSI breakpoints that are available. And I think that goes back to the main problem with all of this, or like why we even um, decided to do this. So the primary reason we chose. Commercial systems is because majority of uh, clinical labs might rely on them, but these systems are very complicated for steno specifically because the FDA doesn't have clinical breakpoints, um, except ceftazidime. So ceftazidime is, is is generally not used for uh, stenotrophomonas. The main frontline agent that's normally used is uh, trimethoprim uh, and sulfamethoxazole, which is also known as Bactrim, and that doesn't have. Any clinical breakpoints, which means that any uh, any new commercial agent, uh, commercial systems, or even commercial systems that were approved prior to two thousand nine that have now been updated, or need to be updated, uh, can't actually be changed and used for stenotrichomonas because there's no FDA um, breakpoints. So it essentially means uh, for steno, uh, commercial systems are kind of frozen in time and. Um, are really, really lacking uh, any kind of recent updates that need to be made. And there definitely can't be any new systems approved by the FDA as well for steno testing. So there's a lot of performance issues. Um, And beyond uh, Bactrim, so cancer patients, especially uh, cancer patients that are neutropenic or have uh, other hematological malignancies, they tend to be immunocompromised and on those patients, we can't actually use Bactrim because of a risk of myelosuppression. So cancer centers actually don't rely on Bactrim as much. So they rely on a bunch of these other alternative agents, which we tested like levofloxacin, minocycline, ciprofloxacin, and tigacycline. So it's it's kind of, that's like the biggest problem. So not only do we not have any guidance for Bactrim, we don't have guidance for any of these other agents with cancer centers. Uh, heavily rely on it. And again, cancer populations are particularly prone to steno infections because they're not going to compromise. So in general, I guess we, we, we compared all of these isolates and uh, we used a cohort of about um, 110 isolates. These are all uh, bloodstream isolates first, so from uh, active infections over a period of 10 years. Um, essentially, we wanted to see how do these systems compare to each other and then also discuss what are the implications of not having FDA breakpoints in, in the real world and uh, what we discovered was using um, what CLSI uh, breakpoints we do have. Um, so CLSI is again, a separate body that does have uh, clinical breakpoints for, for these agents. So it does have clinical breakpoints for uh, Bactrim, for um, levofloxacin and for minocycline in addition to ceftazidine. But again, the FDA doesn't recognize any of these except Ceftazidime, which is rarely, um, which is something rarely that um, uh, Steno is susceptible to. A lot of Steno uh, isolates tend to not be susceptible to ceftazidime anymore. Um, so, using CLSI breakpoints, because FDA breakpoints weren't exist, it didn't exist. Um, we basically discovered that um, all of these. Uh, systems did have a pretty reliable performance for uh, for these agents. They were, and again, we kind of parsed through the errors, and I think that might be something that was um, important for people to look at. So, the most important agent that works really well for all on all systems is is minocycline, um, which again is something that there's no breakpoints for, but everything works really well with minocycline so a disc works really well we reported that before e test works pretty well with minocycline and so do um so do the microscan and phoenix which had like a perform error categorical agreement which is how we look at performance of 99% and 100% so reliable um and with the uh, exception of that for bacterium microscan and phoenix also worked really well but Vitech 2 was the one that we really ran into a lot of problems with. Um, so the Vitech 2 really didn't have good performance for any of the agents that we tested. And again, that's due to the way that the Vitech system, the technology works. And I think that, ex- that kind of highlights one of the main problems. So the Vitech 2 is a pretty old commercial system, but it hasn't been updated and can't officially legally be updated because of the lack of FDA breakpoints. So if there were even problems identified, like we identified in the study, uh, essentially this is showing that um, this is mobilizing or making a push for the FDA to try to get them to recognize CLSI breakpoints and see the utility in, in recognizing these breakpoints so there can be changes made so, guide, so labs can perform better when it comes to guiding care.
0: Okay. And now, so you mentioned the breakpoints. As far as you know, do you know why the, the FDA doesn't have any breakpoints?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, it's essentially, it's been a, a, a age long legal, uh, uh, battle prior to the, prior to 2007, uh, the FDA used to allow commercial systems to obtain, uh, clearance. So get cleared to be officially used in hospitals and clinics and clinical settings with breakpoints that were published by CLSI, but they changed that. And, uh, now, uh, FDA only allows for commercial systems to be cleared if they have a bit on the agents and the drugs that they have breakpoints for, which creates this, again, this bureaucratic discrepancy. Um, the reason the FDA doesn't recognize uh, steno breakpoints is the FDA kind of has their own system for how they, uh, how they accept breakpoints, which tends to be a little bit different than CLSI. So CLSI comes up with uh, a combination of looking at clinical outcomes data, then the PKPD, so the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, along with uh, understanding what the uh, MIC distributions of of these isolates are and then for specific drugs, and then comes up with breakpoints. But then the FDA really heavily relies on um, going by usually, for example, the indication for the drug uh, based on the manufacturer of the drug itself, and also really uh, demands more clinical data uh, that's more contemporary and that's more recent um, in order to recognize breakpoints. And again, that can be very complicated for rarer bugs where you kind of don't have those metrics to begin with because there's not a lot of studies. So partly that's kind of why we're generating a bunch of this data to, to try to hope to get some more data out there on steno because that's partly the reason for why there might not be more um, there, there might not be recognition of certain breakpoints because there isn't contemporary data. Um, but besides that, um, this is kind of there's discrepancies like this not just for steno, but for uh, there's other bugs and drugs, and uh, it's basically an ongoing, more of a political push, I guess, to get the FDA on board to start recognizing CLSI breakpoints and to start being a little bit more open with how they're doing these um, deliberations on what's recognized and what's not
0: okay um thank you for that so as far as so when you uh so the vitek was used in the study and as far as you know we're all you know there are different models out there you have like the there's like a smaller or larger one you know there's automatic versus manual dilution Mm
1: -hmm. do
0: you know which method was used or was it just you know everything across was it the same or was there a variability there or
1: so the uh, Vita two, the, uh, the the there was no vi- variability within the system. So uh, we had isolates uh, uh, that were. Uh, Sent to different institutions, and each institution uh, performed one of the automated systems. So one institution performed ViTech, one did the MicroScan, and one did the Phoenix. Um, So within the ViTech itself, there were um, like there there could have been possible discrepancies when it comes to, for example, the lot to lot changes with the with the cards that are used, the AST cards that are used on the ViTech. But as much as possible, for example, there were. Uh, there was consistency between which machine was used and which equipment was used and which uh, techs were responsible for um, setting up and interpreting the data, for example. Um, So again, um, in general, even though it's not, it's, I would say the ViTech has problems. I think we kind of saw that all of these three had issues. So uh, with the exception of, like, for example, minocycline. Minocycline is the most active agent against *Enterococcus* uh, multifilia and 100% of isolates that we tested in our manual systems study with uh, broth macrodilution are susceptible to minocycline. And that was the only agent that performed well on um, uh, performed well on the systems evaluated against that particular antimicrobial But we couldn't actually evaluate it with the BITEC at all because it wasn't on the card. So that's another limitation. Sometimes you have, the ViTech is very limited in terms of, it has specific cards with specific antimicrobials for specific bugs. So if you don't have, for example, is approved by the FDA for uh, certain drugs, then those drugs are going to be potentially going to be difficult to be able to get on the same card. Um, so it wasn't tested at all. Um, and in contrast, besides, uh, besides minocycline, no system performed uh, acceptably for the remaining antimicrobials, but Vitec had, you know, by far the worst performance. And, and the most uh, important reason I think we highlighted the Vitec being uh, having poor performance was that it had poor performance for Bactrim or trimethoprim sulfatoxazole, which is the frontline agent um, across um, uh, specifically for Vitech, it was overcalling uh, resistance. So basically it called uh, isolates that were susceptible, 25% of isolates that were susceptible were called resistant. And that can be problematic because then it takes a valuable uh, drug that could potentially be used in clinical settings out of question because, you know, people wouldn't want to, uh, physicians wouldn't want to use a drug that the, um, that the AST report says it's resistant to. So that's kind of why we focused on Vitec too. Um, but all of the, uh, agents had, I mean, all of the systems had major issues all around. Um,
0: yes, definitely. I see, I see that from the study, it seems that, you know, the results were, were varied. like you have sometimes, you know, you have the broth micro dilution was resistant and then the automated systems were susceptible and, and vice versa.
1: Yeah. So there's like, uh, performance standards that we have to, uh, whenever we assess, um, a test method, so in this case the automated systems in relation to the gold standard. So the gold standard is is the broth micro We basically need uh, them to meet certain metrics. So they need to have a certain number of uh, maximum errors that they can reach before the system is considered unacceptable in terms of how it performs. Uh, so essentially, it, for the frontline agent for, for Bactrim, uh, none of the uh, systems had reliable performance, which, was, which, is, which is concerning. And again, for minocycline, uh, we only had um, two of the systems that performed well, which was the Microscan and the Phoenix.
0: And after, uh, after this study, has, the, has there been any more done?
1: Uh, so there's now, I think uh, there is more focus on trying to see if we can actually look at clinical outcomes. So uh, the last author of the study, which is Dr. Romney Humphries, who uh, I'm going to be doing my clinical microbiology fellowship with. So our next steps that uh, we're focusing on are to look at what does the patient side look like? Cause here we're just focusing on in vitro testing. Um we just take these, yes, they're clinical isolates from infections, but at the end of the day we're doing in vitro susceptibility testing and only looking at whether an agent is able to you know kill this bug in a test tube essentially, right? so in a in an, uh, in a very different not physiologically accurate environment. So we want to then look to see how um, depending on what drugs are given to patients with stenatricchoitis infections, how do they perform? and hopefully that's kind of the missing piece that uh, essentially the, the FDA is saying that they don't have enough published data on, which is how are the clinical outcomes of patients with stentatrophimodis infections when it comes to the usage of these drugs. And um, because clinical labs can use uh, CLSI breakpoints, for example, to uh, you, on standard and on these agents uh, that they have sales breakpoints for with the DISC, with the e-test, or they can validate a system by themselves. But that's again, a process that only labs with a lot of resources can sometimes do. So um, in that way, I think some of the manual systems like, like DISC and e-test are, um, and we also looked at uh, Life chem uh, they tend to be a little bit more uh, accessible just because there's so many limitations when it comes to using commercial systems. So we're focusing on looking at the patient side next.
0: Okay. And yeah, so just going back to the, to the Vitec cards, cause definitely, you know, what you said, I have worked with different cards and definitely, you know, they all have different antibiotics. Sometimes, you know, for stenotrophomonas, I work with some that only have the SXT, mm-hmm. uh, some had that and levofloxacin. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also been on, under several protocols as far as, you know, the SXT, some cards, we don't use them anymore because of that, the discrepancy of the SXT. Mm-hmm. I see some labs that actually, uh, they confirm resistant results of, you know, that they get on the Vitec by SXT. Do you have any recommendations? Should they be confirmed? I mean, there's a variability
1: yeah, yeah, we always talk about um, uh, especially for some of the even the alternative agents uh, where SXD is not an option, and, and clinic, uh, cancer centers, for example, rely very heavily on uh, levofloxacin, cipro,floxacin, and Uh Whenever we see errors, um, it, it tends to be there's patterns with these errors. so there, there's, you know, either consistently, for example, with the Vitech, where there was a overcalling of resistance or non-susceptibility when it came to backroom. So for, for situations like that, we always ideally recommend uh, verification with secondary testing, ideally with like a reference method so you can send it out to a reference lab. But again, it kind of comes down to uh, two problems there where it, these commercial systems then kind of use, lose utility if you're always kind of going up with a uh, needing to rely on a backup method. Um, and likely if you're confirming resistance and if it does in fact turn out to be resistant, I think everything then goes back to, okay, this is a uh, this is an infection in a patient with a resistant isolate, and this is probably where you need the an- answers the fastest. So it's reducing turnaround time um, pretty significantly every time you kind of add these verification methods, which are important. Um, but yeah, so ultimately, um, there's so many problems with these commercial systems and none of them really perform really well. Um, that in order to resolve that realistically and still save on turnaround time, still make sure that there's no impact on patient outcomes, or to mitigate the impact on patient outcomes, really what needs to happen, I guess, is the like increased coordination between the standards development organizations, the like the FDA, pharmaceutical companies, and the diagnostic manufacturers, because um, they're the ones with the ability to make these changes. So, for example, if we notice that there's a consistent overcalling with a certain drug that is likely due to something technical in the, in the machine itself um, in, in terms of how the assay is performed and something that they can control. And again, ideally they would be able to make these updates but every time you make an update to this system you would have to go through the whole pipeline of getting clearance with the FDA again. And that's where the hurdle now comes up because the FDA doesn't have breakpoints. So, so none of these systems have been updated. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're hoping to, to push for I guess over the next few years.
0: Um, is there anything else that you, you can say, you have to say to the audience about this article?
1: Um, I guess uh, just uh, there's, uh, I think it, it, it is important probably to uh, understand some of these, uh, not just the clinical limitations and the technical limitations of antimicrobial susceptibility testing, but some of the legal limitations. I think it's um, a, a understanding like how hard it can be to, get certain drugs and bugs tested just because there's there's so many bureaucratic hurdles that are put in play, um, sometimes helps even relay uh, that information to, you know, for example, like medical lab techs or even relay that information to clinicians. And, and I think it kind of adds a little bit more awareness on like where the changes need to come from, um, especially because changes only really happen when there's widespread awareness and there's a general push at every level, I think, to To improve kind of what the what the standard is right now, which is which is not very good. Um, And there's a there's a bunch of reviews. um, I would recommend just I think you can actually look up um, uh, Dr. Romney Humphreys and uh, look at uh, anything along the lines of 21st uh, Century Cures Act, which is the which is the in reference to um, all of the legality that went around pushing the FDA to try to get them to. move past the change that they made where only commercial systems can be approved with their breakpoints. Um, and there's a lot of reviews, uh, like I said, written by, uh, Romney Humphreys, that kind of covers, like, here's all these uh, problems that exist in the world of AST. And I think that's important uh, for us to understand.
0: Okay. So there you have the listeners. Um, so, uh, Dr. Khan, I want to thank you for taking the time to comment on to, uh, let's talk micro.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Khan's interview. As always, I enjoy sharing all this information with you. So continue staying motivated. Continue bringing that passion to what you do. It's always so important. It makes time go go faster and you actually do a better job. So continue staying motivated. Stay safe. And of course, continue talking micro, until the next time, bye.